0: All right, um, question for you. How many of you are familiar with uh, or have heard of John Owen? And if, you, and if you are, could you tell me how and what way are you familiar with his writings? Have you just heard his name in passing? Have you heard somebody calling him a scoundrel? What, what was it? So how many of you are familiar with, with John Owen? Tell me what you, what you think, maybe not think of him, but know about him. Uh, Because he may not be a popular guy with everybody in here, but we'll see. Uh, I've got a a one pager that I carry around that is by him that uh, explains very clearly why election Mm -hmm. is election. Right. Sort of the, you got the one page version of the death of death and the death of Christ. (laughs) 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 All right. Anybody else? Dan, you've always got that. You're right on the edge there wanting to say something. Brother, you could, you just say it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, he's, you know, uh, you, generally you ask that question about any Puritan and you'll get, some people have no idea, you may have heard, the, be hearing his name for the first time tonight, and that's okay. My aim tonight, I mean, we're looking at historical figures in the church, and my aim tonight, you know... Uh, there is sort of a, a biographical outline I'm going to give to you, uh, hopefully it won't be dry, but just some things to sort of give you a picture of, you know, what time he lived in, sort of the flow of his life, but then I really want to look at, it. we're going to talk about his the, the weight of his work, but there are three works I want to look at and just pull out from those some things that are very powerful, very powerful to me that affected me, because my my point in talking about John Owen is to get you to become familiar with his work and perspective and to be sort of drawn into what his purpose was in all his writing and work, which which is this, is for you to have a deeper affection for Christ, to be absolutely caught up in who, who Christ is, his glory and his beauty. That was such a major theme that flowed through all of his writings. And let me say up front, I have not read all of his writings, and you're going to see why in just a moment. I don't think I've been alive long enough to read, have read all of his writings. That's a joke. Okay, that, there, there's the laughter. But that, his, his writing is, uh, how do you say it? voluminous, voluminous? I don't know how you would say it, but it's, he's written a lot, um, and we'll look at that. Now he Owen is an English Puritan that was born in Statham, England in 1616. 1616 to 1683. Now he lived 67 years. For a Puritan in that time, that's a ripe old age. I mean, that's you had to deal with a lot of stuff. The plague comes into play in his lifetime uh, in England. So he lived for a Puritan a a good long while. Um, He was born to his father was a vicar of, of Statham, Henry Owen. And his propensity for learning and, and for knowledge is seen at a very early age. It was at the age of 12, 12, that he entered Queen's College, Oxford. 12 years old. You know what I was doing at 12 years old? I think playing with Hot Wheels and bugging my sisters. Um, he earned his bachelor's at 16, 1632. He was 16. He earned his master's at the age of 19 in 1635. I came to Christ at the age of 19. Um, in 1653, he was awarded an honorary doctor of divinity, but apparently this was against his wishes. He didn't want any part of that for whatever reason. Um, but it was awarded to him. Um, he was raised under, a, you know, with Puritan convictions because of his father and the household that he lived in, but he did not experience and assurance of faith until 1642. Now, the interesting thing about this is that this was during a worship service in which he and a friend had gone to hear a preacher, Edmund Calamy, and he was not there, but an unknown guest preacher was there. How many of you have been in a, in a service, you go to see somebody and they're not there? My wife and I went on, we left from vacation and came and we stopped in Cleveland, Ohio at Parkside Church and wanted to see Alistair Begg and he wasn't there. It's was like, oh, gosh. But it was an awesome service. So this is what happened with Owen, and his friends said, Look, uh, Callum, he's not here. Let's go across town and hear, I don't know who the other pastor was, but somebody that was more famous than this anonymous guest preacher, and Owen stayed. And this, this preacher, who Owen never found out who it was, um, preached on Matthew eight twenty six. Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? And apparently he received great comfort and, and experienced and what he called an assurance of his salvation. Um, which I think that says a lot about sort of the weight we give to preachers of notoriety sometimes. And, you know, I, and believe me, I, I love to listen to a lot of preachers that many of you would know very well. But you know, th- these guys that are faithful, preaching the gospel in small churches, that you will never hear their names. You will never see their name on the spine of a book. You will never see them... President of the convention, you know, these, these guys are slugging it out in the trenches and God is using them in a powerful way. Here's a guy we will never know who he was, and, and my favorite Puritan uh, was bolstered in his faith and received great comfort in the spirit because he stayed and listened to this guy that nobody knew. So I think that says a lot. Um, Owen went on to pastor, uh, he was pastor of Fordham Parish in Essex, England. He did this from the age of 27 to the age of 30, so 1643 to 1646. When he converted, I put that in, in uh, quotations from Presbyterianism to congregate- Congregationalism. Uh, we should yeah, yeah, not necessarily, but well, here's, what's, here's the irony about that. That's the same year that the Westminster Assembly convened to draw up the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Presbyterian you know that, that doctrine that we we are in a lot of agreement with. We we differ in areas of how they understand covenant and children in the covenant or of the covenant, those sort of things. But we would stand in agreement with him on vast portions of that, that confession. Um, but he went into con- congregationalism. Um, the 1650s were considered his, his most prolific era of, of writing. So this would have been his, his 30s and 40s, his most productive years. Now, I'm 50 now, and I haven't had the type of productive years that Owen had when it comes to writing. In 1651, he was appointed Vice-Chancellor of Christ Church College in Oxford under the chancellorship of Oliver Cromwell, whose apparent official title became Lord Protector of England, Scotland, and Ireland. And he was a close associate of Oliver Cromwell until he opposed Oliver Cromwell becoming King of England. Owen said, that's a bad idea. And so their friendship sort of broke off at that point. Uh, And it was the Act of Uniformity in 1662 under Charles II, who was king of England at the time, or it's also called the Great Ejection, because at that time, Owen and and many of his fellow Puritan ministers were counted as enemies of England because of their not conforming to the church of England. These Puritan ideals that they held to and preached uh, did not sort of bolster the king's throne, and uh, this became an issue. So Owen had already by this time been replaced at Christ College Oxford and was living in basically in seclusion back in Steadhampton, but he still continued to preach the gospel and to write. This is something he did continually, was to write. So at the age of 49, in 1665, he was indicted for holding religious services in his home, but he was not arrested. He escaped somehow being arrested and charged. And so a year later, the great fire of London in 1666 happened, and then the plague set in, In London, and he returned to London, preaching the gospel, and he actually planted a small church there. And you think about—I mean, in all that's going on with the plague setting in, and and London has burned up, and he's preaching the gospel, and he's still writing, still continues writing. Um, It is at this time where he wrote *Indwelling Sin*, which we're going to talk about tonight. His exposition of Psalm 130 and the first volume of his seven volume commentary on the book of Hebrews. Massive work on the book of Hebrews. Um, 1674, his first wife dies. Um, and he, within 18 months, he marries a widow by the name of, now I don't know if I'm saying her last name right, and it sounds kind of funny when I say it, but her first name was Dorothy de Oile. Sounds like oily. It's when you look at it how it's written. It looks like oily, but oily. Some, I don't know how you say it, but he marries her, um, and he suffered, started suffering. You know, later on in his life with health problems, with asthma and gallstones, um, which kept him from preaching often. But he, again, he kept writing. That's the amazing thing about this guy. When he could not get out and do certain acts of ministry or preach, he would still continue. To write. And it's during this, these later years that he wrote his final work, which I'll show you tonight in just a moment The Glory of Christ. Um, matter of fact, it went to publish on the day of his death, and we'll talk about that in a second. But to understand the depth of his intellect and the productivity of his writing, which he continued to do, you just need to consider his published works. Now, Banner of Truth Publishing has published his 16 volume set, which is some 9,000 pages of his writings. I've got that set, and I've read different sections of it, and every once in a while, i look at it and go, man, I wonder if I could read through that, um, and I suppose you could, but gosh, that'd be like taking a beating, I think, uh, it, I mean, and I love the way he writes, we're going to talk, I'm going to give you some tips for reading Owen at the end, but uh, it would, it would be a, a, a tough task to undertake, um, I found him to be very useful. And you go, you know, what's Owen think about this? And you go find what he's written on it. Um, so that's some 9,000 pages which include doctrinal, practical, and controversial works. When I say controversial, I mean dealing with controversy. Though some people may find his works controversial. that's He didn't intend them to be that way. He was just simply being truthful to Scripture and what it taught. But he would deal with controversies at times. Um, But included in these are on on the person and work of Christ, communion with God, which we'll talk about a little bit tonight, mortification of sin, the death of death and the death of Christ, which he's perhaps best well-known for, and the glory of Christ. So in addition to that 16-volume set, you have that massive exposition of Hebrews, which is seven volumes. Then you have a 2,000-page biblical theology that he wrote. And then you also have his personal letters and correspondences. So he had a 41-year, essentially, writing career where he produced more than 80 works that, that, in my opinion, are largely unparalleled today. And he gets a bad rap sometimes for being difficult to read, and and I, and I don't think he is. We may, not, we may not be used to how he reads. Now, you can get updated versions of his works, and I recommend doing that. But if you get if you look at that 16-volume set, which, which looks like this, the covers are really ugly. One of these days, we're going to update them, and I'm going to be mad because I have the old ugly ones. But... Uh, but these aren't updated. Even the print in them is um, pretty archaic looking. But um, there's a way to read Owen that will get you, you have to sort of get in the groove with Owen. I mean, even the writings of John Calvin, he gets a bad rap about always Oh, he's too intellectual and dry. That is false. Absolutely false. John Calvin's writings are warm and pastoral and encouraging. So don't let, don't let anybody dissuade you from reading these guys. Um, what marks his, you know, The productivity is is amazing. I mean, he's a towering figure in church history for his productivity and his writing. Uh, But what really moves me when I read Owen is his deep and immovable affection for Christ that is seen in his writings. And this is what he is pushing people. This is the reason he wrote. So uh, the, the fabric of his writing is that theology must lead to doxology. If it doesn't, then you're wasting your time. His his writing was not to just give the church information, but to push them to love Christ more. To push them and open their eyes to see the love that God has for His people through Christ. And how God rejoices in that love for His people. Um, So it's it's not mere knowledge, but greater affection. Um, He was a staunch defender of the reliability and the integrity of Scripture. Uh, He wrote vastly on on the sovereignty of God uh, and our and our comfort in that sovereignty in all things. Um, most notably the salvation of sinners who are wholly incapable of turning to Christ without the regenerating work of the Spirit. He he pushed these but in, in such a, a loving and compassionate way. Um, so to look at the life of and work of John Owen, uh, it's a vast undertaking. So I want us to be encouraged and and to grow to desire in reading his works. Um, and there's there's works you can start with that, that are, are a little lighter and, and updated. These Puritan paperbacks are are great. They're little, see? So they take these massive works and they don't cut truth out of them, but they update the language and smooth out some of his transitions. And they become much more, um, I don't wanna say palatable, but um, easy to swallow in our sort of modern understanding of, of literature and how we read. So. I want to look at a few things. Uh, the first one is, is this one. Now, here's my point in doing this. And just sort of, we're not going to talk about when I say there's three works I wanted to look at. I'm not going to go through these page by page, step by step. There's just a couple of things. I want to look at his contribution to theology in the areas that he's dealing with in these, in these books. And the first one, this is the last work he wrote, as we'll see in just a moment. Um, it's called, and this is an updated version. It's edited by Sinclair Ferguson. So, and it's uh, Christian Focus Publishing. No, this is Christian Heritage Publis- Publishing. So you can, uh, uh, all his, I won't say all of them, but a lot of his works are published and they have very similar covers to this, but they're different colors. Uh, you can find those relatively cheaply and they're, they're pretty smooth. The good thing that Sinclair Ferguson does in there is he will take these weird phrases, and there's a little gray box. He'll go, hey, there's, here's what this means. <laughs> here's how you would say it today. And it, it's really, it's truly really helpful. Um, so this was his last work published, published in 1684. Here was the title originally. I mean, we see it as The Glory of Christ, His Office and Grace. That's, that's what it's titled there. Here's the actual title. Meditations and Discourses on the Glory of Christ in His Person, Office, and Grace – with the differences between faith and sight applied unto the use of them that believe. That's the whole title. See, that doesn't sell nowadays in a bookstore. It's just too long. We give up and move on. Uh, but that's the title. So, August 24th, 1683. So, Owen is dying. This is, uh, he, he's dying, and the day it goes to press, uh, his colleague William Payne tells him that the book has finally gone to press. Um, and this is what Owen said: "I am glad to hear it, but oh, brother Payne, the long-wished-for day is come at last in which I shall see that glory in another manner than I have ever done, or was capable of doing in this world." I mean he's, you know, the book's, book's gone to publishing. That's good, but hey, I get to go see him. I get to see that glory which I tried to express in writing. And Owen takes some 300 pages in this work to to demonstrate that the conviction, his conviction, that the the principal design of our entire life is to acquaint ourselves with this glory and beauty of Christ, to trust Him and cast all our cares on Him. And he builds on the foundation of John 17, 24, which is that verse in Jesus' high priestly prayer, which reveals to us the ultimate reason we were created. And he says this, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you give, have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. I mean, that's it. We were created to behold the glory of Christ. This is what Jesus prays for us, which we talked about some weeks, months ago. You know That, that old question, if heaven were everything, You could ever imagine it to be with everything you ever needed and every need you've ever had met, but Jesus is not there. Would it be a place you'd want to be? Absolutely not. And that's the point Owen's making here, because it would that wouldn't fulfill the the reason for which we were made. If we couldn't see the glory of Christ, heaven is not heaven. And this is what he, he talks about. So he says it's so crucial is our apprehension and appreciation of the glory of Christ that he says this. He who discerns not the glory of divine wisdom, power, goodness, love, and grace in the person and office of Christ with the way of salvation of sinners by him is an unbeliever. Let me say that again. He who discerns not the glory of divine wisdom, power, goodness, Love and grace in the person and office of Christ along with, oh, I'll add the word along, along with the way of salvation of sinners by him is an unbeliever. So what's he saying there? You guys tell me, what's he saying there? If we understand it. The way of salvation is Christ alone. Owen is saying here what? If we don't discern... These other things, if we don't. So ultimately, what does that mean? Is it just about sheer knowledge that the only way of salvation is through Christ, or is is it about affection? Landing on Christ with the totality of who you are and loving Him. I mean, this is what the parable of the treasure, right, that Jesus told. If you find the treasure, I'm going to paraphrase big time here, okay? The farmer finds the treasure, hides it, goes and sells everything he has. And runs and by it Because that is what he wants. This is what Owen is getting at here. If you don't long to see the glory and beauty of all that Christ is, along with the fact that only in him is salvation found, then you're not experiencing that salvation. He says he's an unbeliever if is in his disposition. Um, he also, in this little book, deals with, and I thought this was neat because we're coming up on you know, the Christmas season with the incarnation, he deals with the hypostatic union, you know, the man, God, together, the humanity of Christ, the deity of Christ, one. And he says this, and I think this is helpful. He says, This word was made flesh not by any change of his own nature or essence, not by a transubstantiation of the divine nature into human, not by ceasing to be what he was, but by becoming what he was not. In taking our nature to be his own, to his own, whereby he dwelt among us. And he gets very he goes on and on about this. But wanting us to understand and sort of try to wrestle with and wrap our heads around this reality that Christ is God fully and man fully. And how beautifully those come together, even though we can't fully comprehend it. So the pursuit, and this is part of the, you know, he deals with it in this book because this is part of that pursuit of beholding the glory of who Christ is. Part of that glory is that we cannot begin to fathom the reality of all that his person contains. And uh, loving him, pursuing that, is essential for our own assurance, which he struggled with, you remember, early on. So he says this in, in his works, in the first volume of his works, he says this. This is... In, in that uh, that's where you find the glory of Christ, though it was the last thing he wrote. Um, he says, As for those the bent of whose mind... Now, this, this is not updated language, so you got to bear with me here. But as for those the bent of whose mind doth not, I'll say does not, lie toward thoughts of them, that is the glory and beauty of Christ, whose hearts are not on all occasions retreating unto the remembrance of them, who embrace not all opportunities to call them over as they are able, on what grounds can they be esteemed Christian? Nay, if our minds are not filled with these things, if Christ does not dwell plentifully in our hearts by faith, if our souls are not possessed with them, and their whole inward frame and constitution so cast into the mold as to be led by a natural complacence or arrest unto a converse with them, we are strangers unto the life of faith. Owen takes a long time to say something very specific. He exhausts a thought. You have to know that when you get into reading Owen. But he's saying the same thing here. If this isn't our pursuit, if our minds aren't drawn to a pursuit of this, we need to examine ourselves. If, If this isn't where we find our joy and our feeling of of, uh, of being and essence and rest in him and pursuing his glory. And he says, on what grounds can we consider ourselves believers? It, it's a call for a self-examination. Now, the next work, is, if we're moving on, is a communion with God. Um, this, is a, this is the foundation he builds on with communion with God. When you think of communion with God, you think of what has been brought to us, the gift that we have been given because of Christ, he says this. He builds on 1 John 1, three. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So he's building on this idea of fellowship and, and calling it what it is, communion, coming together. Um, and he marks clearly that the only basis of our communion with God, our coming to Him and walking with Him is, is the grace and parting mercy that is found in Jesus alone. This is something that Owen continually drives home for us. And he's careful also when he talks about communion with God to make sure that he expresses it in Trinitarian terms. So when he speaks of communion with God, he is referencing every person of the Trinity. He writes this, There is no grace whereby our souls go forth unto God. No act of divine worship yielded unto Him. No duty or obedience performed, but they are distinctly directed unto Father, Son, and Spirit. So he wants us, again, to grasp the immensity of who God is. So, when you read this work, though, what strikes you is how he drives home not only the the privilege and the joy that we should have in communion with God, but but the big push that comes through with it is God's joy in His communion with us, the joy that, that God has in communing with His people. I mean, he quotes Zephaniah 3.17 when he talks about God's resting in His love for us and singing over us. That, every time I read that, it blows my mind that God sings over His people. I don't know what that sounds like or what that means in all of its truthfulness, but this expression that God has Joy, because of us. And it it, it gets more difficult to understand when I say joy because of me, because I know who I am. And yet he sings over me. And so this is what Owen is good about reminding us of. Unashamedly, those things that sometimes we shy away from, he calls us to remember. Um, One of the clearest teachings on the necessity in this book of the righteousness of Christ. And this is one of those, those issues here. Because the thing that is necessary for our having communion with God is an alien righteousness. Righteousness not our own. Um, but he has a good way of laying it out for us that, I, that causes us to think about it. So listen to this. Talking about our sins having been forgiven. He says this. There is yet something more required. And we hear that and go, what? He says, it is not enough that we are not guilty. We must also be actually righteous. Not only all sin to be answered for, but all righteousness is to be fulfilled. By taking away the guilt of sin, we are, as persons, innocent. But something more is required to make us to be considered as persons obedient. I know nothing to teach me that an innocent person shall go to heaven. Be rewarded if he be no more but so. Adam was innocent at his first creation, but he was to do this to keep the commandments before he entered into life. He had no title to life by innocency. This then, moreover, is required that the whole law be fulfilled and all the obedience performed that God requires at our hands. This is the soul's second inquiry. And it finds resolution only in the Lord Christ. For if we, listen to this, for if we were, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, shall we be saved by the life of his son. This is what he's getting at. Innocence, obedience. Romans 5.10. His death reconciled us, then are we saved by his life? He's not, that's not a question. He's saying, that's how he says it. Then We are saved by his life. The actual obedience which he yielded to the whole law of God is that righteousness whereby we are saved. If so be we are found in him, not having our own righteousness which is of the law, but the righteousness which is of God by faith. Philippians 3.9. Then he goes on to say, This I shall have occasion to handle more at large hereafter. And he does, of course. But he's good at getting us to go, Wow. Let me stop and think about that for a second. That it's not just about innocency, having my sins forgiven, but that puts me, you know, you don't get put at zero and be okay. You must be righteous, obedient, completely. And this is what Jesus did for us, this is what we call his, his active righteousness done on our behalf. Um, so, and I, and I remember reading that back when I lived in New Mexico, and just sitting at the table, you know, highlighting it and thinking, and just sitting down, thinking through that. Not, not that I didn't believe that before, but sometimes you, you come against truths and somebody will say it in such a way you go, now wait a minute. I've always believed this to be true and this to be true, but now we put them together and see the whole picture. And again, what that did is push me to see more of the glory of Christ and to rejoice in my communion with God. And that's, that was his aim in that. Now, the last work we look at here is the tiny one, at least in the updated version, it's tiny, The Mortification of Sin. I recommend this book. I mean, I recommend all of his writings, but this is is, um, good. They're all good. But you get what I'm saying. This one sort of floats to the top for me. um, When you think about just, just give me, Owen, give me a practical, everyday writing that will help me in my fight against sin, in the pursuit of holiness. And that's what that book does. Um, And here he he builds on Romans 8.13. He says, For if you live according to the flesh, not he, but Romans 8.13, Paul says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death or mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. Um, Now he sets forth several things in this little work that the believer has to embrace if they will persevere in the faith and so demonstrate the reality of their confession of Christ um, and one of the first things he asserts is the absolute necessity that that this this mortifying of, of the flesh this killing of sin is not an option if you don't do it you don't live he's not, this is this may be my favorite quote and a lot of people know this quote from Owen but it comes from this work be killing sin or sin will be killing you impresses upon us the, the urgency that sin is not to be trifled with. To trifle with sin is to, is to endanger showing yourself as not a believer. We, I had a conversation earlier tonight about this issue of perseverance. And you, you guys have heard me, I think, say this before. Um, this issue of perseverance is a promise and a proof. It's a two-sided coin. And so Owen gets at here, look, you fight sin. If you don't fight sin, it will kill you. You will not persevere. You cannot take sin lightly. So that's sort of his foundation to this work. And he points out a couple, He thought, like I said, several things, but he says this. Number one, indwelling sin will always be with us in this world. And that we need to remember that. lest we get discouraged and think, this just isn't working. No, it's it's, it's it's a fight, always, the side of eternity. We will always deal with indwelling sin. And he draws this from Romans 7, 34. And he also says this, Sin, if not continually mortified, <clears throat> continually slain, will bring forth, and I love how he says this, great, cursed, scandalous, and soul-destroying sins. Very colorful way of saying this will grind you to dust. So he says this on page 11 of that little paperback. He said, and tell me, you guys think about this and tell me if, you, if, if this sounds appropriate for our context today. I mean, just our society. I'm not saying here at Fisherville, I'm saying just the, the church context that we see it, uh, around today. He says, I cannot but note, even though there is in this generation a growing number of professors, I don't mean college professors, but those who profess Christ, um, a great noise of religion. Religious duties in every corner, and preaching in abundance. There is little evidence of the fruit of true mortification. So what's he saying there? He's saying, where's the pursuit of holiness in all the stuff we do? Because here's what I can tend to do. And when I say I, I fully believe that when I say I, that I have have common people here with me deal with this as well, but I'm going to pick on me. I can do exactly what what Owen is saying here. I can get very busy teaching. I can get very busy reading. I can get very busy um, having conversations out in the hallway here. I can get, and all the while, be hiding this back here that you can't see. And it'll kill me if I don't deal with it, if I don't mortify it. I don't want you to worry about me. I'm not saying I'm doing that and you need to be worried, but I'm saying, but it's so easy to do that. It's so easy to hide the things and think, what, what makes me acceptable is that you all see me doing all the right things here. But if I'm not fighting daily to kill sin, as Owen said, it will kill me. So he presses home that necessity and he, and he reminds me, he reminds us this is done by grace. Because if he just said, look, kill sin, fight, 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 what's going to happen to you? You're going to, right? You're going to burn out. You're going to get discouraged. You're gonna... So he, he does a good job of reminding us that this is done by grace and the necessity of the Holy Spirit working that mortification in you. So it's about dependency. The fight is about dependency about recognizing who you are, recognizing how serious sin is and what it will do to you, and falling before Christ, independency, yeah. and begging for this mortification. It doesn't mean you're not part of it. You fight. The way John Piper says it is declare war. I heard a sermon one time where he said, you know, I'm so tired of people murmuring about their sins that they're struggling with. I mean, murmur, murmur, murmur. And he said, declare war. And, you know, slams it. He could be fiery when he wants to be. And, and he's saying, you know, stop murmuring about it and declare war. It's that serious. Um, so he deals with, you know, the, the Holy Spirit and working and our responsibility in that. And he says this, this is what mortification is not. Number one, it's not to utterly root out a sin and destroy it. And I think the reason he says that is because it's about the battle because we will deal with this our entire life. Now, that'll make more sense when I get down to what mortification is. Number two, he says, it's not just the changing of some outward aspects of sin. It's not behavior modification, essentially. It's not a change in our natural constitution or demeanor. You know, just everybody smile, a a Sunday school smile, and it's okay. It's not a diversion of sin. It means you don't, you don't leave this sin because you start going to another one. It's not occasional victory over sin. Though we want to see that. He, said, that's not he says, here's what mortification is. Habitual weakening of the lust its habit. Which again for, for forces on us this issue of constant fight. He says, it's, and that's his next thing, it's a constant fight. And contention against sin. And the word that came to my mind there was grit. You stay in the fight because you've got staying power. And then he says it's a degree of success in the battle. So there are measurable results. Not not as he said before, occasional victory over sin, but you are moving in a direction with this. It's becoming lesser and lesser. You're experiencing victory over sin. One of the most powerful sections of of the book um, is his treatment of the necessity of the universal obedience in this fight. Now, this this is the the one section in this book that, that really hit me. He says, you cannot mortify a specific lust that is troubling you unless you are seeking to obey the Lord from the heart in all areas. But listen to this. Just Indulge me here for a moment. He says, if you hate sin as sin, and every evil way, you will be watchful against everything that grieves and disquiets the Spirit of God. You would not be concerned only about that sin that upsets your own soul. It is evident that you fight against this sin merely because it troubles you. If it did not bother your conscience, you would let it alone. If it did not bother you, you would not bother it. Do you think God will help you in such a hypocritical effort? Do you think that the Holy Spirit will help you in the treachery and falsehood of your own spirit? Do you think he will free you from this so you are free to go and commit another sin which grieves him? No, says God. If I free him from that lust, I will not hear from him anymore and he will be content in his failure. And no one says, we must not be concerned only with that which troubles us, but with all that troubles God. If we will do anything, we must do everything. That that hit me. Just thinking about, you know, dealing with things. I can be rude sometimes. I can get... Why why am I dealing, wanting to deal with and mortify that sin? Is it because it bothers me, because it upsets my my day or my way of life, or is, is because it grieves God. And just that pointing me to, you know, it's 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 total. I mean, we just talked about this. This Christ gives us his righteousness because it is total obedience to the law of God. Why should I not seek to conform in practice where he's leading me to with my life? And not just deal with little things, but you know. We find ourselves dealing with sin because it upsets us, but we let other areas of our life be blind spots to us. That's not good. So he reminds us it's universal obedience that we fight for, not partial. It's what, you know, how many times have you told your children, if you have children? I know my wife and I have said it, said it a lot. You know, partial obedience is disobedience. I mean, it, that's just a law we set down in our house. So hopefully we can get to the gospel in our house. But the law is if you don't obey completely, you are disobeying. If you don't obey immediately, you are disobeying. And it's, you know, so why is it true for from me to my kids? Where does that come from? Because it's 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 a truth that's that's over my head. It's 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 bigger. It's a priori, it's before me. This is a truth that comes down from my father that condemns me. And my only hope is in Christ because it's universal, absolute obedience that is required. and We only find that in Jesus, but we fight for it in practice because that's where he is leading us. He's declared us to be righteous because he's making us righteous. All this is about this issue of being sanctified. Um, you, before I give you some, a couple of tips here, you guys, what are you, what are you thinking about this guy, John Owen, at this point? is anything i mean there's a lot here i know and there's a lot to his work and we've I've sort of picked out just a few little things that hit me that i thought you might appreciate but my design has been again for you to think wow maybe i should could could read a little bit of this guy and because again his design is to push you into to greater affection for christ so yes sir That's great. I mean, that's, that's what I wanted you guys to see because I think the problem is today you can get, I mean, there are very academic, and there's a place for very academic books. and So you can get that and you can have uh, very devotional books. And there's a place for that as well. But the thing I appreciate about the Puritans as a whole was the mixture of those two, this, this very solid theological foundation and a willingness to push deep but but be very transparent about why would we even do that? It's to show us more of the glory of God in Christ. So it's a good thing. I yeah. would also, um, Becky Conerman shared something with me the other day. She said that the goal of theology is not able to, it's, or even what Robert always said, that the goal of theology is not to be able to say, I know something I'm talking about. God, but to yeah. Hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Somebody else had their hand raised? I thought, yeah. I, think, I think it's interesting. He was very uh, emphatic about God's sovereignty in all things. Mm-hmm. And that was evident throughout his writings, right? But also very uh, emphatic about our responsibility yeah. and that we have to kill sin. Like, it wasn't one or yeah. the other. Yeah, exactly. And it actually reminds me a lot of John Piper. hmm. Yeah, the sovereign God doesn't let us off the hook to do, you know, what he's called us to do. It's an issue of obedience. Um, yeah, and I appreciate that about him, too. It's a, you know, it, and it makes for, for very dense writing at times, but, but that's a good thing. Um, I think pushing ourselves, if we, if we want to, to grow deeper and grow theologically, which I think is a, a necessity... Then we need to push ourselves to read things that are that take a little that you have to read a little slower, and chew on and think about. That's the benefit that comes from doing that is immeasurable. Uh, it will grow you quickly. Uh, let me no. Let me scratch that. <laughs> I've always said quick growth is cancerous growth, and I do believe that. But we'll will grow you um, in a way perhaps that you hadn't experienced it. Will it will, it will push you into places you haven't been. It's a good thing to wrestle with God. It's painful. I mean, Jacob learned that, right? But it's necessary. And, it, and there's such grace in that. There's such grace that God would come down and say, let's do this and wrestle. Let you to get close and push into who he is and learn and be changed when you get up and walk away. It's a good thing. Um, here's some... Just a, a few tips that I, it, these are just from me, um, tips for reading Owen if this is something you want to do. Number one is this, I would say, find editions of his works that are updated in language. I mean, you, you can, you know, some of them aren't, and you can read them, but it is easier to find this kind of stuff. And, and Puritan paperbacks from Banner of Truth are, are very, reliable. they it's not just John Owen, but they have Thomas Brooks and all, Thomas Watson and all of these Puritans. You can find and and they're very edible, if I could say that. You can you can eat them in a couple of bites, um, and, and it's worthwhile. And then, like these, I said that are edited by Sinclair Ferguson, updated in language and easy, er, easier to read. Um, find editions that are abridged, and that would say, and that would be the the Puritan paperbacks, abridged editions that sort of get down, because I I recognize, I mean, if John Owen had the time in his busy schedule to write 9,000-something pages, um, that does speak to me that the culture was very different. We're so busy in what we do now. I get that. Um, For years, you know, as a pastor, I was preaching about people, the necessity to do this and this and this and this, and now I'm living the life of the people that I was preaching to, and I realize, no, that's pretty hard to do. Um, And I appreciate that now. (laughs) Um, But... So, it's, so there's nothing wrong with reading abridged versions of these things because you will benefit from it. And the last thing, a bit of advice I have for reading Owen is this. I, sort of, I had the conventional wisdom that, man, John Owen can be so deep and uh, so dense at times that you can only read just short little sections and you've got to stop and chew on it. I would say don't do that. Here's why. John Owen can take 50 pages to say one thing. Because he will ex- he get, when he gets done with a thought or a point he is making, he has wrung the rag out. You, you, you walk away from that going there's nothing more that could possibly be said about that. And so you you have to get in, I mentioned earlier get into that groove or that flow with Owen. so you got to persevere and get through several pages and then you go, oh, I'm with him now I see where he's going." And then you're like it's like you know if you if anybody's a runner in here, once you hit, you know, you pass five miles or so, then it's like your legs are almost on automatic. And that's how you feel with Owen. You, you get in the groove and go. And so I would say, read him in large chunks, not small chunks. And that, that you'll find that to be helpful. Um, I want to close with this tonight. This is something, um, Owen said right before he died. Um, Sort of tied in with the other quote I read about him going to see that glory in a way which he had not been able to. But he said this, I am going to him whom my soul hath loved, or rather, who hath loved me with an everlasting love, which is the whole ground of all my consolation. I am leaving the ship of the church in a storm. But while the great pilot is in in it, the loss of a poor under rower will be inconsiderable. The promise stands invincible; that He will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. So, this was an amazing guy to me. Um, just one that's always I've had a, an affection for him since I first read. The first thing I ever read by him was the Glory of Christ. Um, but all those things that, that even that, that Sarah mentioned that that just the affection that he tries to get across. Even you know you see it in him with with quotes like that. And he wants you to experience the same thing. And that's what his writings are about. Thank you so much, guys, for um for listening. I you know, hopefully you uh have a greater appreciation for John Owen, at least know who he is now. <laughs> know who he is on the scene of church history. Sixteen sixteen to sixteen eighty three. He's been dead, what, some three hundred and what, twenty uh some a long time. <laughs> but uh Being dead yet, he still speaks, which is a very cool thing, I think. Um, Let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for letting us come together tonight. And um, again, as always, I pray that anything I may have said tonight that is not helpful, uh, I pray that you would remove that, you would remove the dross. And may we leave here tonight encouraged and more determined to, to see and seek your glory, to rejoice in your great love for us, to be amazed that you love us and rejoice over us the way that you do. Lord, we thank you that you would use a man like John Owen and you've you've used countless others. And he even considered himself a, a poor under rower in the ship of the church of no account, expendable in every way, not necessary. But we thank you, I thank you, for his life, and the work that you allowed him to do. And Father, we've looked at many figures in church history, and we thank you that this is just a reminder that you are keeping your promise to build your church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Father, may we remember that as we leave here tonight. And we thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.